Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series in the book of Genesis, A New Nation. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47, verses 1 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Years of Our Sojourning. I've been looking for a synonym for the word sojourning. Some say that a sojourn is like a vacation, but I think that's misleading. A sojourn is a place we stay for a short period of time, and it it carries with it the idea that we're on a journey, and the place we now reside is not our final destiny. In Genesis 47, we'll find that Pharaoh finally gets the opportunity to meet his prime minister's father. He begins with the question of how old he is, and Jacob will respond by telling him how many are the years of his sojourning. It's a very curious response. I assume that all this must mean that Jacob never thought that Canaan was his home. He always believed that he was on his way to somewhere else. And I say that for at least three reasons. First, it's a curious response because Jacob knew that the land of Canaan was God's promise to Abraham and his descendants, and yet he refers to it as the land of his sojourning. And second, it's a curious response because a great many Old Testament scholars have argued that the Old Testament saints had only a vague sense of the afterlife. Great many argue that heaven, the final home of the saints, that idea only gets developed in the New Testament. And yet, by referring to his years of sojourn, it seems clear that Jacob believed that he was going to an eternal and permanent home. Yep, heaven is in his mind. The third reason the matter is so important is because there is something that we should all learn from this. How do you handle reversals or disappointments in your life? How do you handle failure? How do you handle unmet expectations? How do you handle end-of-life issues and the thought of your own death? If you think of life as a sojourn, you'll think about these matters differently than those who do not. Now, strangely enough, as we're going to see, Jacob, even though he saw his life as a sojourn, never really got over his disappointments and hurts and even bitterness. Now, we'll look at that shortly, but be warned, before we're done, I want to challenge your own assumptions about the events of your life and how they have shaped you. And here's what I'd like to say, and I, and I warn you, this may shock some of you. You are shaped less by the events of your life and more by how you view the events of your life, or or to put it another way, by the prism through which you view your life. Okay, that's where we're going. So now let's get to our passage, and I'm reading Genesis 47, 1 to 6. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So Genesis 47 begins with the announcement that the family of Jacob, every one of them, have now abandoned the land of Canaan. 
even though this is the land promised to them by the God of Abraham, they've now taken all their possessions and they've gone. I mean, whatever permanent buildings there might have been, and we don't know if there were any at all, but now all stands empty. The flocks and herds are gone. The wagons are gone. Whatever other possessions they might have had have all been pulled up. Israel has gone to Egypt. Now, the time has come for the family to be presented before Pharaoh. If you go back to chapter 45, verse 17 and following, uh, we will find that it was Pharaoh himself that had invited them to come. And he also invited them to come with all their possessions. But he also had a promise. Chapter 45, verse 20 records Pharaoh is saying, have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. But you never want to take Pharaoh for granted. And so now that they're here, it's time to come and ask again and to do so with the most humble demeanor possible. And you might also remember that the very last verse in chapter 46, Jacob had some instructions for his brothers when they were to actually go and meet with Pharaoh. So I'm reading chapter 46, 33 to 34. And Joseph says, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. In other words, keep a low profile on that shepherd part and understress that aspect of what you do. But now in chapter 47, after Joseph has picked five of his brothers that will appear before Pharaoh, right after Pharaoh asks, what's your occupation? Well, they seem to ignore Joseph's advice and they simply blurt out, hey, we're shepherds, the whole lot of us. Well, what gives? There are a number of options that have been given. I mean, one option is that they were just gobsmacked. They finally were standing in front of the ruler of Egypt and they promptly forgot everything they were supposed to say. Possibly. You know, another suggestion is that they deliberately disobeyed Joseph, attempting to assert their independence from his leadership. Maybe. Still another suggestion is that at the last minute, they had further discussions on what to say, and everyone together changed the line that was given. Well, whatever the reason was, we simply don't know. And the book of Genesis gives us no hint as to what happened. Neither does it offer any judgment on what was said. So I think it is no good to speculate how this came to be. But, but one thing we know, if it was the plan of God to prevent the family of Jacob from integrating into Egyptian society as they had been doing in Canaan, well, this one line, well, it pretty much sealed the deal. They were going to be a separate people from now on, whether they liked it or not. And, and amazingly, Pharaoh shows no signs of displeasure. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And indeed, that's exactly what God had intended. He had intended that Israel would get the best of the land, and he also intended that there would be no danger at all of them integrating with the Egyptians. But of course, Pharaoh does more. Egyptian inscriptions from that time period indicate that, that foreigners were often superintendents of royal cattle, and Pharaoh not only reaffirms his offer that they should come and reside in the best part of the land, he goes further and he offers a very lucrative job to anyone who can handle it. And if you're Jacob at this point, I think you should have felt overwhelmed. You know, I liken what's happening here from moving to a land of starvation and being offered a land of plenty. Look, I know there's a famine in Egypt at the time, but Goshen would have been on the Nile Delta as it flows into the Mediterranean. 
So that seems that it would have been a very fertile land indeed. And since Joseph is in charge of food distribution, you've got to imagine that he would have made sure that his family was well taken care of. And and once the famine was over, this land would produce wealth and would sustain a great number of people. This was the place that they could grow to be a nation. So I say again, Jacob should have been overwhelmed at this point in time. God was so gracious. And it's with these thoughts that we have to make our way through a puzzle of what comes next. The five brothers have just met Pharaoh, and now we read chapter 47, verse 7 to 9. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And so Pharaoh greets the old man with what would have been a respectful question. You know, most cultures in the world, age is a sign of God's grace, and it's deserving of great respect and honor. And clearly, Pharaoh wants to honor the aged Jacob, and so he asks him his age. And in response, rather than simply giving his age, which, you know, at that time was 130 years old, and Jacob responds by telling Pharaoh that that these were the years of his sojourn. He has been on a journey to a home. But then rather than explaining the matter, which, you know, at least in my book, it's worthy of a wonderful explanation. It could have begun with the God of creation. And then it could have moved to how God chose Abraham and through Abraham had promised a global universal blessing to the world. Jacob offers no explanation at all. Rather, his very next words, all these last 130 years have been few. I never even got to be as old as my dad or my grandfather. And more than that, these 130 years have been evil years indeed. I have suffered and my life has not been good at all. I I have no great story to tell. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Well, messages like this help us feel we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. So please continue to stand with us with your prayers and gifts, and Back to the Bible Canada will continue to do all it can to impact lives with the gospel. You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca. I have to say that from one perspective, one has to agree with Jacob. He did have a very difficult life and it was filled with more disappointment than one man should have to bear. A part of that was his own making, we know that. When he was young, he had cheated his brother out of his birthright and had deceived his own father. But then, just as the dust was starting to settle on that act, 
Jacob is forced to leave his home to go to his father's family in Aram and there to find a wife. And that would have worked out just fine because when he went, he met the woman of his dreams. Now, he was forced to work for a dowry. It was seven years of hard labor. But as Genesis tells us, it didn't seem like anything to him for he loved her that much. But then at the last moment, his father-in-law deceives him with a deception that changed his life. He substitutes Rachel for Leah, and suddenly Jacob finds himself married to the woman he does not love. Of course, he's given Rachel as well, and he has to work another seven years. And he's also given two concubines along with his two wives. And that's part of the dysfunctional relationship that will evolve between his boss, who is his father-in-law, and the women in his life, and for 20 years, his life is badly rearranged in a way that he had never wanted in the first place. And when he finally comes home, he is faced with a growing family and the challenge of living among hostile neighbors. And then the wife he loves dies while giving birth to his youngest son, and he's devastated. In the meantime, the dysfunction among his sons, sons of four different women, is growing exponentially. The sons of the other three hate the son of Rachel. And Jacob, because of the bitterness of his soul, is surely responsible for much of this mess. And I have to say, he probably would have responded, I never wanted four wives. I wanted one wife, the woman I loved. And this, all this was thrust on me by the decisions that others made. Of course, as Genesis unfolds, Jacob finds out that the dysfunction in his family was far greater than he had ever imagined. His 10 sons of the three wives have sold Joseph into slavery for money. He wasn't killed by a wild animal after all. They'd been lying to him all these years. So was he bitter? I suspect so. And now on top of everything else, the land promised to his grandfather, his father, and then the land that was to be given to him was now in his rearview mirror, racked with famine and death. What else could he say to Pharaoh? Yeah, I'm, I'm 130, but this, he says, is no glory. It has been 130 years of disappointment and reversals of fortune and family discord and enemies all around and the death of the woman I loved, and and here I stand. I think we've all heard the question, how are you? And then comes the answer, I'm fine. But Jacob is not fine, or is he? I've said it before, and it needs to be said again, yeah? The events of our lives really do change us. They shape how we view life. I mean, notice the difference between the person who's born to wealthy parents gets into a best university or college and lands a very lucrative career and marries a fashion model and then has two kids and everything this life has to offer and contrast that life to the man born in the poorest country's ghettos who never was given an education, who knew the ravaging of disease, who lived through war and malnutrition. Isn't it just a fact that it is not just a matter of the prism through which we view our experiences? The experiences of some really do bear witness to evil days. Yeah, it's true. But let's take a second look at Jacob's life, shall we? You know, for one, Jacob seems to complain that his lifespan was much shorter than that of his father and grandfather. See, the fact is, Jacob was always on the brink of dying. When his sons brought him the blood-stained robe of his son Joseph, he then said that he was going down to Sheol in sorrow. But he didn't die. Indeed, in the kindness of God, he's been allowed to live long enough to be reunited with the son he loved, even though he thought he was dead. 
And then you remember when the brothers wanted to take the youngest, Benjamin, down to Egypt. Again, Jacob saw only the worst possible outcome. If he dies, he said, it's going to kill me. But Benjamin didn't die. Indeed, the outcome of that trip was 1,000 times better than Jacob could have imagined. And when Jacob finally was reunited with Joseph, he says that he's now prepared to die since he has seen his beloved son again. But in fact, Jacob was not about to die. Indeed, Jacob was going to live another 17 years. If Joseph had been 17 when he was taken away, in the loving kindness of God, God was now about to give him another 17 years with the son he loved. But that's not all. Jacob was not the firstborn, and yet it was God who had given him the blessings of Abraham. And yes, it is true that his father-in-law Laban had deceived him and made his life miserable, and yet it was this very misery, with his own brother Esau bearing down on him, that Jacob met Jesus at the river Jabbok. And there he wrestled with God, and there his heart was changed. Had it not been for his hardship, Jacob, would simply have remained that arrogant and deceitful man. No, no. God had not treated Jacob as his sins deserved. Rather, God had reached out his hand and redeemed a man who surely didn't deserve it. And all those years of mourning for Jacob and neglecting his family and watching as his family disintegrated around his ears while he simply didn't care. And as his sons were slowly leaving the faith of Abraham and integrating into Canaanite culture, what of that? Had it not been God himself who had rescued Jacob by preserving Joseph and then through him saving his family? Is it not just as possible that Jacob could have responded very differently to Pharaoh? Why couldn't he have said, my years have been filled with my own sin? But they've also been filled with a story of the mercy and kindness and undeserving love of a God who chose me and preserved me as his own. You see, it is the same set of experiences, but it is a different prism that views them differently. One person curses God for all the things they thought they rightfully deserved, and the other marvels that God did not treat him or her as his or her sins deserved. See, I think that Jacob, while he truly had become God's man, is still not a man who had allowed God to mature him. How about you, my dear listener? When you look back over the years of life that God has given you up to this point in time, are you angry at the things that brought you disappointment and pain? Do you constantly come back to God and ask why? Now, how could you have allowed such disappointment to come into my life? I was at one point in time so filled with idealism, and now all I have is this. Or have you considered the prism of grace? Have you considered that God has not treated you as your sins deserved? For if he had, you'd be in hell right now. Can you open your eyes and marvel at grace? Because I promise you, if you do, your life will overflow with thankfulness. Annie Johnson Flint, a woman who suffered more than we can imagine, and spent most of her life in a wheelchair racked with the constant pain of arthritis, wrote, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That from a woman who never knew a moment without pain. 
Tell me, you see, it's the prism out of which you view life. So you must see, if you are not in Christ today, don't you see? Christ has kept you alive to this very day so that you might have time to repent of your sins and receive mercy at his hand. And if you're in Christ today, are you still unable to see the shaping hand of your Savior? Sadly, on that day, Jacob couldn't see it. And yet, in spite of that, the old man does have something that he needs to do. Genesis 47 verse 10 says, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. See, Jacob knew that he had the power to bless the king of Egypt with the ancient blessing that came from Abraham, and so he did it. I'm forced here to see the disappointed man of God who can still rouse himself at some point in time and bless a pagan king. Let's read to the end of our passage, verses 11 and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their descendants. It's an interesting way for our passage to end. If we contrast what we've just read with the next scene, that of hunger and need, we're left to ponder the riches of God's grace. And so I end where I began. Do you see your life as a sojourn in which you are, by God's grace, moving inexorably to the eternal promised land? And are you overwhelmed that in spite of how hard your journey was at certain points, that there was always grace, there was always mercy, There was always kindness. And are you filled with thankfulness? And if you're not, you need a new prism through which to see your life. John, can I ask you, when difficult circumstances of life, often unexpected things happen that completely change the the direction of our lives, how in the midst of all that do we maintain our joy? Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it is true that all uh, discipline, as Peter tells us, for the moment um, is not pleasurable, it's painful. Um, I think what has to sustain us at that point in time is a robust faith that there are eternal plans of God that are greater than our limited uh, foresight. So what looks to us like something that is devastating in the moment, uh, and we can't imagine how it's possible for anything good to come out of it, You know, it's important for us not to then imagine what possible good can come, but rather to say, I will entrust myself in these moments to a God who has given me great and precious promises, and I will hold them to be true. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, a new nation right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Dr. Neufeld, and I want to express how blessed and overwhelmed I've been by letters, notes, emails, even phone calls of appreciation that we've all received. We consider the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada as a true privilege and calling, and it would seem God has allowed us to make a difference for decades in the lives of Canadians. In this season, we pray many have heard and considered the message of hope that comes through the gospel. It's why we exist. This month is a significant one in the Back to the Bible calendar a month where we reach out across the country to ask for you to help in a noteworthy way to sustain this ministry. 
You've probably heard others on the broadcast share the specific financial targets, so you likely know what they are, but can I simply ask, if you're able, consider a special gift to the ministry this month. We'd be so grateful. Just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our website at backtothebible.ca. We appreciate you and may the Lord bless you richly.